Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. We're continuing our study of this ancient summary of essential doctrine, the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't written by the apostles themselves, but it does effectively present the most crucial points of their message. You can't have Christianity without the core beliefs outlined here. And today we're looking at these words. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We don't talk about the ascension very frequently, but maybe to you it seems like an incidental detail, nothing, nothing more than an answer to the question, if, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, why can't I see him? Well, he ascended. But this doctrine touches on key truths about the gospel. The Apostle Paul recognized this. Look again at our New Testament reading, Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you've been united to Christ, then it's time you stop thinking so much about what's going on down here. It's time to reorient your heart, your mind, and your will around what's happening in heaven right now. And what's happening in heaven right now? Christ is ascended. And here's, here's why that's important. Jesus didn't descend to heaven just to wait around until it's time to return. He ascended to reign as your cosmic king. Before Jesus ascended, he said something very important to his disciples. This, this is what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Every angel above, every man on earth, every demon below will ultimately answer to Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. How did that happen? How is it that this poor man from Nazareth, this son of man who had no place to lay his head, how did he become king of the universe? It was the cross. That ultimate stage of Jesus' humiliation, that time when he died an accursed death, hanging naked and exposed as a criminal among criminals, that moment was more than met the eye. It wasn't just a humiliation. It was a victory. Paul said earlier in his letter to the Colossians, back in chapter 2, that Jesus took the record of our sins and nailed it to the cross. More than that, he, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When the Son of God was crucified, he was not defeated. Exactly the opposite. In his sacrificial death, Jesus conquered. And the cross wasn't just the victory of a conqueror either. It was the conqueror's coronation. Jesus was given a crown for his head. He was given royal robes to wear. He was lifted up and exalted before the people. The sign above his head heralded him as king of the Jews. Good Friday was a coronation ceremony. And what does the king do after his coronation? 
he sits down on his throne and begins his reign. That's why Paul specifies that Jesus isn't just in heaven now. He's seated at the right hand of God, reigning as king from the place of highest authority. This this, this, this point about his ascension is illustrated well in our Old Testament reading this morning, Psalm 68. Psalm 68 begins by praising God as the one who rides through the deserts. That's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, the ancient symbol of God's presence marching through the wilderness with the Israelites after the Exodus. God was with them in their suffering, defending them from their enemies and providing for their needs, all the time leading them toward their goal, the promised land. Specifically, he leads the procession to Mount Zion, the capital of the promised land. The ark ascends to the top of the mountain, leading a host of captives, receiving gifts among men. This is the victory march. The king ascends to the mountain on high and then sits on his throne. And from there, he defends his people and provides for their needs. The psalm could have ended there, but but it keeps going. The psalmist recognizes that the story doesn't really end on Mount Zion. As marvelous as that mountaintop sanctuary was, it wasn't the ultimate reality. God is more exalted than that. He's not just the God who rides through the deserts. He is the one who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. His majesty is over Israel and his power is in the skies. Looking back at Psalm 68 through the lens of the gospel, this is what we can see. Jesus descended to earth and rode through the desert with us experiencing the depths of our sufferings, even to the point of death. He conquered our enemies in the desert and then ascended on high, not merely to Jerusalem at the top of Mount Zion, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. And from that throne in heaven, he does what every good king does. He directs what happens in his domain. He defends his people and he distributes gifts to meet their needs. King Jesus directs what happens in his domain and and everywhere is his domain. The great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said that there's not a square inch of the universe over which Jesus does not cry, mine. He's the captain at the helm of the universe, steering the world toward the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Everything that happened last week the check you got in the mail, your dizzy spells, the sickness your kid brought home, the questions that you got right or wrong on that test. It was all orchestrated by your king with a wisdom beyond your comprehension. And though you may not never understand how, it was all for your good. Do you believe that? All of it, all of it was for your good because your king loves you. Give him praise for the blessings. Give him thanks for the challenges. Every one of them came from him and every one of them was for your good. King Jesus also defends his people from all their enemies. And who are the enemies of God's people? It's it's not the Russians, 
It's not ISIS or China or North Korea. It's what Paul says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And and against those spiritual enemies, Jesus gives you spiritual means of defense. He's given you his word to guide you through every operation. He's given you his Holy Spirit to strengthen your soul. He's given you your brothers and sisters in the church as comrades in arms. Do you find yourself overwhelmed by your doubts and temptations? Maybe it's because you've been trying to fight on your own strength rather than leaning on your king and the helps that he's provided. Your king would defend you. And lastly, King Jesus distributes gifts to meet his people's needs. When when Paul talks about the ascension in his letter to the Ephesians, he highlights one set of gifts in particular. There's there's many others, but here's, here's one particular set that Paul mentions. This is what he says. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Jesus knows that what the people of his kingdom need more than anything is his word. So he gave apostles and prophets to record his word perfectly. And he gave evangelists and shepherd teachers to teach that word to every generation. Are you feeling uncertain in your Christian walk? Do you feel far away from the Lord? Do you wish you could just Hear him speak to you? Well, Jesus hasn't left you without help. This is his provision for you, the Bible and your elders. The king has given you his written word and his ministers to nourish your soul. Jesus didn't ascend to heaven just to wait around until it's time to return. He ascended to reign as your cosmic king and... He ascended to serve as your heavenly advocate. The heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father is the place of highest authority, and it's also the place of greatest influence. Who has more influence than the right-hand man? The heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father is the place of highest authority, and it's also the place of greatest influence. I mean, who has more influence than the right-hand man? When the, uh, when the United States was first coming together as an independent nation under President Washington, there, were, there was almost no end to the decisions that needed to be made about governmental structure and economic policy. Specifically, Washington had to address the question of whether to establish a national bank. Now, most of his cabinet was staunchly opposed to the idea, but but Washington gave it the green light anyway. Why? Well, because his right-hand man, Alexander Hamilton, had advocated for it. The right-hand man has pull. So how does Jesus use his position as right-hand man? Well, according to Paul in Romans, he is interceding for you. Did you realize that the eternal Son of God, the cosmic King, is praying for you right now? 
The Lord Jesus is right now sitting beside the Father, whispering in his ear special requests for you. If you doubted that your name is ever mentioned in the royal court of heaven, Jesus wants to assure you that he is always speaking on your behalf. What requests does he bring to the Father for you? Well, for one, John tells us that he's an advocate with the Father when we sin. Every time you sin, Jesus stands before the Almighty Judge as a reminder that your penalty has already been paid. Some of you may be constantly wrestling with your conscience. Each day you feel yourself burdened with the weight of your guilt. This is what Christ's ascension means for you. In your criminal trial before God himself, there is no prosecutor. There's only one lawyer in the room, your defense attorney, and he's in close with the judge. This court is biased in your favor. Did you think that Christ would be your prosecutor? There's a, there's a mural hundreds of years old about the chancel door in the Holy Trinity Church of Coventry, England. This painting depicts a, a line of anxious people all queued up to receive their final judgment from an awful, angry-looking Jesus. And on either side of Jesus, his, his mother Mary and John the Baptist stand pleading for these poor sinners as though Christ needed a reminder to show mercy. Is that how you imagined you would appear before the Lord Jesus Christ? Not at all. How could could Jesus accuse you? Paul says he's the one who died for you. More than that, who was raised for you, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. He has no time to accuse you. He's too busy defending you. But Jesus doesn't only pray for your forgiveness after you sin. Listen listen to what he told Simon Peter in the upper room not long after the Last Supper. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus prayed for Peter's faith. He prayed for Peter's endurance for his perseverance, and he he prays the same thing for you right now. That's, That's why Hebrews says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He saves you to the uttermost because he intercedes for you at every step of the way. Jesus isn't a a spectator sitting in the stands while you run the race on your own power. He's an active participant. He's the strength in your legs pushing you forward. He's the the grip on your shoes keeping you from slipping. He's the, the air in your lungs bringing oxygen to your whole body. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you exhausted from fighting your temptations day in and day out? You feel ready to give up after all your struggles, your difficulties, your stressors? Take courage. 
Your success doesn't depend all on your willing and running, but on Jesus, who's praying right now that you will endure to the finish line. If you ever doubted that your prayers for help are heard, this is the assurance you can take from Christ's ascension. Every prayer you pray for endurance, for holiness, for forgiveness, for help, for mercy, for grace, Jesus echoes every one of them in his own prayers. And, and even if the Father wasn't inclined to hear you, there's no chance he won't hear the prayers of his right-hand man. If you ever feared that you would fall away, be lost forever, ask yourself this question. Do Jesus' prayers go unanswered? Do you think God would refuse to grant a single request from his only begotten son? Absolutely not. If Jesus is praying that you would persevere, then you will persevere. If Jesus is praying that your faith would not fail, then your faith, however weak it might be, will not fail. Jesus didn't descend to heaven just to wait around until it's time to return. He ascended to serve as your heavenly advocate. And he ascended to bring you into heaven with him. I hope you still have your Bibles open to Colossians 3 because we're not done with it. <laughs> Look at what it says in, in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, now those are some enigmatic words. Remember what Paul said just, just a second ago, just, just in verses one and two. You're, you're meant to set your mind on heavenly re reality, orient your life around what's going on in heaven right now. now. Now here in verse three, he's telling you why. Well, first, because you died. What are you talking about, Paul? I'm, I'm alive right here. I've got a pulse and everything. This, this is what he means. You were united to Jesus' death on the cross. When he died, so did your old self, your old sinful self. That's not you anymore. That person died. And now the, the new you, the redeemed you, the you that's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that you is bound up with Jesus. You can't be separated anymore. Wherever he goes, you go. So if he goes up into heaven, so do you. You don't belong to this fallen order anymore. You don't live here. You belong to the kingdom of God, the new creation. You live in the age to come. But we don't feel any different, do we? We don't look any different. We're still walking on the same earth as everybody else, wearing the same clothes, working the same jobs. That's all true. So, so how do we know that we belong to the age to come? Well, we know because Christ ascended. And so, so your life, your new creation life is here already, but it's not completely here yet. It's already and it's not yet. So, so for now, what Paul says is your life is hidden and he goes on to say that it won't be fully revealed until Jesus appears at the last day. But, but here's the point. 
If you belong in the heavenly order now, if your life is bound up with Jesus, then then why are you so focused on what's going on around you? Why do you orient yourself around this world and its values? Why are you so concerned about getting what you think you need here? Why are you set on experiencing everything this life has to offer? Why are you still trying to please God with this world's methods? That doesn't make any sense. You don't belong here. You belong with Christ in heaven. And if you belong with Christ in heaven, then you should be focused on what he's doing. If you belong with Christ in heaven, you should orient yourself around that world and its values. If you belong with Christ in heaven, you should be seeking how Jesus might prepare you for eternity, seeking to experience the fullness of intimacy with him now and forever. And most importantly, if you belong with Christ in heaven, then you need to put down all this world's methods of trying to please God with your own works, with your own uh, 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 self-righteousness. Jesus has conquered for you and he sat down at God's right hand. There's nothing left to be done except throw yourself onto him. Now that's, that's not to say that there's nothing important here on earth. Far, far from it. But if you belong with Christ in heaven, then those things don't belong at the center anymore. At the center is Jesus, risen, exalted, ascended. That old idea about being so heavenly minded, you're no, no earthly good. It's bogus. It's bunk. The reality is you won't be any earthly good until you become more heavenly minded. There's, there's just crazy things that, crazy thing that happens to light in space. Stay with me. It's called, it's called an Einstein ring. When, when stars are, are very far away, and I, and I mean really far away, billions of light years away, then naturally they're, they're very, very difficult to see. But if they pass behind something really massive, something with a lot of gravity, then the gravity from that massive object acts like a magnifying glass. So if you line up your sights with a larger, weightier object, then you can actually see those distant, faint stars more clearly. When you focus yourself on earthly things, however important they may be, it's like you're straining to see those distant stars. But if you line up your sights on heavenly reality, the weightier things, then the glory of Christ puts those earthly things into perspective. You see them more clearly because you see him more clearly. And if you belong with Christ in heaven, then this is how you ought to orient yourself. So this is why the ascension is so important. Jesus Jesus didn't ascend to heaven just to wait around until it's time to return. He ascended to reign as your cosmic king. He ascended to serve as your heavenly advocate. And he ascended to bring you into heaven with him. This is why we confess the ascension of Christ in the Apostles' Creed. 
Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 